Explode your to-be-read pile with The New Release Index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing! Hello and welcome back to When in Romance. We get to talk about romance things of all kinds and I'm excited. I am Jess. And I'm Trisha. And we are recording on Thursday, April 13th, 2023. It is actually light outside this evening because it is now daylight savings for some of you, except those of us who live in Arizona and Indiana. Sure. <laughs> um, I'm sure that I was going to say something else. It's also my dad's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Trisha's dad. Yeah, he doesn't listen to this podcast because, he, you know, just various dad reasons, yeah. but, you know. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. But I think this is the first time we've ever recorded on his birthday. So happy oh. birthday, dad. <laughs> All right, Jess, now that it is light more often, despite your lack of daylight savings time, how are things going in Tucson? What, what's uh, what's happening? What are you reading? What's what's going on down there? Well, there apparently we set a record for... The amount of days between which it was like below 30 in the lows mm -hmm. and above 90 in the highs. So oh there is that. If it was more than one days, I can imagine how you set that record. <laughs> um, so it was like, yes, it's it's hot now. We'll see how that works. But that means more time to sit inside and read. Or right. as it were, listen, I am... Not doing well at reading many things uh, in print beyond, like, fan fiction right now, but I have been listening to Hotel of Secrets. Yes, I have finally gotten up to speed by Diana Biller and narrated by Carlotta Brenton. And I gotta tell you, I know, Trisha, you have already read it, but those of I you have. who have not the audiobook is such an experience. Now, I don't know any Austrians or other not quite Eastern European folks personally, so I can't tell you if the accent that she is doing for many of the characters is, like, bad, but it doesn't take away from my enjoyment of the story. So, yeah, if you are an audiobook person, I definitely recommend listening to Hotel of Secrets. And if you are not, I'd recommend reading it because I'm like two thirds of the way through and it is delightful, which Trisha, you obviously already it know. <laughs> it is. It's delightful. And it's like mysterious. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's all the it's all the good things. All of them. And it doesn't feel quite as dark as like Widow of Rose House. Uh, yes. I want to think. Mm, I think that probably continues to be true. I feel like the last third might take a bit of a turn, but but not quite. Maybe. Yes, not quite as dark. Like obviously, there's like there's a mystery, there's murder, there's all of this stuff happening. But mayhem, it, like mayhem, also. But 
Diana Belair is so great at balancing that with fun characters and uh, so many secondaries that are like, yes, so good. Yes. Anyway, what are you reading, Trisha? And how are you? I am well. I am getting over a bit of an illness. It was I picked something up from my nephews and my brother-in-law. It was either either a cold or hand, foot, and mouth disease. It's mm. unclear which, but either way, it's clearing up now. So moving moving in the right direction. But if my voice sounds a little funny this week, that that is why. <laughs> because I have either a cold or hand, foot, and mouth disease. Wait, what either way. Um, but I am so I've been in a little actually sort of since I finished. Hotel of Secrets, I've been in a little bit of a reading slump. I've been reading my hockey books, and we'll come back to that in a second. (laughs) But I've been trying to pick up some other books as well. And I just, I was telling you before, someday we're going to have to have a conversation about two things, Jess. One is when you don't necessarily like an author that everyone else in the world seems to like, which I think Mm -hmm. maybe we've talked a little bit about before. But the other thing is when you put down a book, but it's not really like a DNF, like you just sort of put it down because... And and you intend to pick it back up, and then you just never do, and time mm-hmm. passes, and all of a sudden it becomes a book you never finished. I always call that I got distracted by shiny things. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I have gotten distracted by shiny things, and I am hoping to get distracted by a new shiny thing because I just had that experience with a, a book recently. But I am excited to um, as I as I close out my learning about hockey from books exercise. Side note: shout out to Rhonda who sent me a really great podcast with uh, a couple of our favorites, Anna Zabo and Ellie Witt. So thank you, Rhonda. But I am one of the last books I'm reading for this project is a book by a friend of our show and a friend of books and hockey in general, Kelly Farmer. So I'm reading the last I haven't yet read the last book in her series out her out on the ice series. The book is called Calling the Shots. And I'm really excited about this one because it features two rival coaches, which mm-hmm. To be honest, as I age, is really more sort of the age demographic <laughs> that I am a part of, as opposed to a 21-year-old rookie or even a 27-year-old hockey veteran. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm very excited about it. It's two head coaches. One of them is a single parent. Yeah, I'm really excited to get into it. So I don't know a ton about it yet, but I, the other books in the series I have read and really loved. So I'm excited about calling the shots, and I will... I will keep you all posted about what I learn. Excellent. Excellent. Well, now that we've talked about that, Trisha and I are here to remind you that we are on a new venture at Book Riot. Indeed. They're tapping the experts to share longer gems based on years of knowledge about books and publishing experiences as readers and book curators and research on lesser-known histories to illuminate and inspire book lovers. You can get the deep dive for $5 a month, twice a month, or you can check out the Splash Pad, which is a free subscription, which will round up some of those experts' recommended reading and bookish lifestyle goods once a month. So check out the deep dive and check out the Splash Pad. All right. We will. Or at least I hope we will. (laughs) Um, we got some feedback from folks after last episode and before, but before we get into it, we'll take a quick break and then we'll talk a little more about working class romance. Explode your to be read pile with the new release index, your new best friend for finding the best new books. 
Curated by the book nerds here at Book Riot, it will help you keep track of the upcoming books we think should be on your radar. You can filter by genre, what's trending among other subscribers, and save books to your own watch list. And you can check out the demo at bookriot.com slash new releases. That's bookriot.com slash new releases. Happy browsing. All right, Jess, one of the things that we talked about on our last episode was how few, how many Dukes there, well, it actually started as a discussion that you mentioned about sort of activities that you don't always see in romance. And you mentioned classical singers and choral singers. But then we started talking about some of the professions that we don't see that often in romance. Mm -hmm. You mentioned female athletes, I think. We talked about how many we see that are overrepresented. There are so many Dukes and so many high powered billionaire business people, often men. Mm -hmm. And it led to a little bit of a discussion about how people who are working class tend to be underrepresented, particularly couples where both people are working class and neither one is, is especially financially secure. And those seem to be a little bit underrepresented in romance. So we talked a little bit about that. And we did hear from someone, I will use the first name of Melissa, who kind of, you know, sort of said, hey, does that actually kind of make sense? You know, like, because there's not a lot of, you know, if you're someone's working a middle wage everyday job, they may not have a lot of time or energy for romance. And so is it part of the fantasy of romance to not have to worry about money and not have to worry about work and to be able to potentially quit your job or choose your job or anything like that? I'm putting many, many words in Melissa's mouth. That's just <laughs> sort of the general vibe, I think, of the email. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was an interesting question. And I think we wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that. So I will let you go first. Do you have some thoughts about that? Yeah, I totally see where Melissa is coming from when we talk about the fantasy. Um, that's why we read about billionaires and dukes and all of that stuff. But as you and I have talked about several times, romance is for everyone unless you're Nazis. So... <laughs> To say that it makes sense to leave out, like, a group of people who make up the majority of the population, in the United States at least, because it takes away the fantasy. Like, I don't want to say it like Melissa herself is being classist in that situation, but that sentiment is something that feels a little grounded in classism, which is a thing that we in Western society sort of just have built in. So, you know, we talk about Mia Hopkins all the time because her books are just, you know, chef's kiss. And, you know, mm -hmm. there are a few other other people who we can go straight to and say this person writes about people who are familiar, who, sure, they are working 40, 50, 60 hour weeks, they get home, they're tired, they just want to sit on the couch, watch TV and, you know, eat out of a box. But those people should be able to be represented in romance as well. Because, you know, they're, if we can read romance about World War Two, and about bad mm -hmm. things, it's the bad times in our lives. It's the bad world bad world times I like that's a really weird phrase um, <laughs> but like when the world really sucks in general yeah. that's when the romance is all the better all the sweeter 
So if your, like, regular life really sucks, then you might find such a greater element of joy in, you know, dating and falling in love and ending up in a long-term permanent relationship. Like, what was the book that we read by Jay? Wrong number, right woman? Right woman. Mm-hmm. Wrong woman, right number. <laughs> wrong, yeah, um, wrong number, right wrong woman. Num- yeah. Um, they were also people who had sort of like financial uncertainty, not instability. They were pretty, pretty okay, but uncertainty. And, uh, you know, they operated the same as, well, probably more relaxedly than a relationship in which one of them would have been a billionaire. Because then mm-hmm. the other, the other side of that is, how does that actually look? Like, how discomforting is that to end up accidentally dating a billionaire? Like, I don't know, in the real world, do mm-hmm. we want that? So yeah, you would also be saying that that fantasy is about creating these fake people who don't exist because, I mean, I'll just say that that socialist line, good billionaires don't exist. <laughs> so... <laughs> one that the average person would fall in love with is a fantasy and trying to change that into real world would be different. I don't know. Now I'm just babbling, but I feel like I got my thoughts out. Yeah. And it's, I think it's an interesting point that you make kind of about classism because it's not so much a particular person or perspective that is that way. I think it's just one of the biases that we have continued to allow for in romance And I think Mm -hmm. some of that is because it takes, frankly, a really good writer to be able to navigate exactly some of the things that Melissa's talking about, right? You have to take some of that into consideration. People are tired, and they are busy, and they are Mm -hmm. sometimes also trying to raise kids or, or trying to work a second job. And I think it takes a really good and talented writer to be able to build a romance around some of those challenges. I think there are a few mm-hmm. things that we see that are sort of left as as allowable prejudices, kind of, as or, or sort of as allowable categorizations that people can kind of ignore in romance. Another one that I always think a lot about and have talked about on this show is people who deal with issues of infertility or miscarriages. And mm-hmm. it's another thing that people don't write a lot about in romance because it takes a skilled writer to be able to build a love story around something that is so tragic or could be so traumatic. And I think mm-hmm. all of that is to say that, you know, this is just one of the things in romance that we we don't see enough representation on, but there are other ones out there. And, and I think it would be interesting to be able to see more people from working class backgrounds and even sort of low income backgrounds be represented in romance, because as you started the conversation with, happy endings are for everyone except Nazis. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And just like the final thought to go back to why we read the quoted fantasy, you know, famous people's problems are not ours. So we read about movie stars and rock stars and business stars and (laughs) science stars Mm -hmm. and all of these people who have problems, but money isn't one of them. And that's that's one of the things that the majority of us do have a problem with, is 
financial security and safety nets and all of that. So we, it is like, I do get what Melissa is saying. It is about living in someone's head who doesn't have our problems, but that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be people with our problems on the page. Yeah. And I think the last thing that I would say about this, Jess, is that I know that there are many people who read romance for sort of that escapist and fantasy element. I think that is an extremely valid reason to read anything, right? Whether it's Mm -hmm. sci-fi fantasy or mystery or cozy mystery or romance or anything else. But I also think that there are a lot of people who don't, you know, who look for something else in it. I've never been a person who necessarily looks for romance because I want it to be a thing that I can imagine myself in or circumstances that I imagine myself in. I am very Mm -hmm. happily single and have been for the majority of my adult life. But I think what I like to see is kind of that storytelling element and see when someone Mm -hmm. can do a really skillful job of constructing a love story and the resilience that that requires through difficult circumstances, no matter what they are. So, you know, it may be the case that people select their romances and what they are maybe if you are reading for escapism, you know, maybe you read about all the dupes you can, and that is great. You are absolutely mm-hmm. 100% allowed to select what you're reading based on what you're looking for. But I would say that since everybody reads for different reasons, it would be nice to have a little bit more representation for audiences who are looking for it. Yeah. There's nothing like reading normal people in, in a romance novel. Indeed. <laughs> normal people with quirky side character friends. <laughs> that's That's the dream. That is the dream. All right. So we wanted to talk about that. And then the next thing that we wanted to talk a little bit about was, well, and actually, first, I will say, if folks have uh, thoughts on this, I would be very interested. It was really interesting to read Melissa's email, and I appreciate her sending it. So thank you, Melissa, for for reaching out. And thank you for thinking about anything that we're talking. It's always nice to know that people are actually thinking about what we're talking about. Absolutely. But if other folks have thoughts on this and and kind of thoughts on that representation or recommendations, Jess mentioned a couple of stories that involve, you know, working class characters navigating their romances, feel free to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. And now I will transition us on to, I feel like you have a little bit of a frustration, Jess, about a thing that tends to be happening around the romance news world, possibly the romance film world. Yes. So if you haven't heard, we've got at least three Emily Henry projects coming up. Or... And this is the source of my disappointment in Mm -hmm. the romance to film pipeline. They've been optioned. And I think actually at least one of them has been, has started the actual process of production. But there are so many romance books, especially in the past five to 10 years that have been optioned for film but then they live in production hell, which I discovered is an actual term. I thought it was just sort of one of those phrases that people use, but no. Production hell is a, is a real word or a real phrase. It's real. It's a real place. They live there until their option burns out and then there's nothing. So this came, you know, we heard about book lovers being optioned and is probably already halfway through filming by now because everybody loves a good Emily Henry story. But I remember once upon a time, the uh, B and Leacock at The Ripped Bodice were working with Sony and their first announcement was that Forbidden by Beverly Jenkins had been optioned for film. 
That was several years ago. And we were so happy. We were so excited. There was celebration across the land, Jess. We were we were basically casting the thing, ready to cut down the script. We were ready. And we have heard nothing yes. since. And I'm just using that as an example because I just remember the elation of hearing that a Beverly Jenkins book had been optioned for film. Her Henry Adams books for the, the ones set in modern day were optioned by a company. Haven't heard anything about it. So many books get optioned, but then they go nowhere. And we can express all of our excitement when we hear that option news, but it's always with the hesitation of, is it actually going to happen? So that's that's my frustration. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. And I think it's, you know, I actually did a little bit of digging before we had this conversation because I didn't have a great sort of cohesive handle on what this process looks like. So I came across a blog entry. It's from 2017, but I think it still holds up. It's by a, a person named Jane Friedman, and I will link to it in the show notes. It's about, it's literally called How a Book Becomes a Movie. And it talks about these four phases, right? So there's, you know, a pitch, right? So somebody has to connect with an agent in, even, in order to even get that option going. Then as Jess talked about, the film gets options, which basically means, you know, if you take, actually, I think Alexa Martin's books were at one point optioned as well. So it's basically saying, we at Warner Brothers or wherever own the rights to develop this. You can't let whoever, I was going to say HBO, but I think Warner Brothers owns HBO. <laughs> I don't know. They're all like entangled to a point where yeah. you can't let Fox, you can't let Disney, you can't <laughs> let Disney develop, you know, uh, fumbled into into a film or a TV series. And so you're sort of like on hold. And, and authors do get paid for that option. They don't necessarily get paid a ton of money, but they do get paid for having those rights kind of on hold. And then as Jess mentioned, there is what Gene Friedman refers to as development hell as opposed to production hell, but I think they're probably the yeah. same, which is the writing of a script. And it can very easily fall apart at that point. I think often it does. And then even once there's a script, you have to do production, which is the fourth step. And again, that's a thing that often doesn't happen. And if things fall apart at any given point, you know, it's say you've got a two-year option, then the option expires, and then you could sell it to Disney or you could sell it to Fox. And so... It's just, I think it's one of those things where if you're not in this industry, you don't really realize all of those steps. And so you think, hey, if something gets optioned, there's a very good chance that it will get made into a TV series or a movie. And in fact, the opposite is true. If something gets optioned, there's a very good chance that somewhere along the line, things will will kind of fall apart, mm -hmm. especially for authors who are not certainly not Beverly Jenkins, but you know, Alexa Martin is is known and her books are certainly very easy to find. But you know, she's not Tom Clancy, mm -hmm. right? I can't think of, <laughs> why can't I think of, she's not, or even like Robin Carr. You mentioned Beverly Jenkins' modern day series that I adore. I've read the entire thing, I'm relatively sure. And it could easily, just like Virgin River, have gotten made into a series that way. I think that's probably roughly around when um, the series got optioned. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the line, things fell apart. Yeah. And, you know, part of it is production companies get to decide where they want to spend their money. If they have to cut out something that will 
costs significantly less in order to be able to budget more to something that they want to remake so that they keep the rights to it, because that is also something that we have to deal with now. Then that thing just keeps getting pushed back and pushed back and pushed back until eventually it just doesn't, it's not relevant anymore. And the cycle begins again. And, you know, not to get like too far in the weeds, because this is certainly not my area of expertise, but I do read enough news and listen to enough kind of culture podcasts that this is also just particularly with TV, a very weird time. Mm -hmm. You know, there are TV shows that are getting taken fully off the air in a way that ever since digital television has been an option, ever since you've been able to buy a season of something on iTunes or Amazon Prime, Mm -hmm. or I guess just Amazon, you could generally find anything that had ever been available, right? You know, everything from a 90s sitcom that was on, you know, like news radio, right? I remember my brother buying that whole series on Amazon or something. Mm -hmm. But now even Gordita Chronicles is, is the example that jumps to mind, a show that was recently on HBO and got pulled off to the point where now the only place you can find it is on an airplane. Mm. Airplanes have like weird licensing deals to be able to show some of these shows. But I think all of that to say, like I said, that's a bit of a tangent, but I only mention it because I think the considerations around what's going into making a TV show are different and potentially have even raised additional barriers Mm -hmm. to getting something made because you know, rightly so, actors or writers or producers or original authors or whoever else want to continue to get paid as people continue to view a particular intellectual property. Mm-hmm. But that gets expensive, right, for for the production studio. And so their easiest way to do it is to just make it unavailable so that they don't have to continue to pay, you know, as, as people continue to mm-hmm. view. So again, I know that's a little bit off on a, a tangent and a little bit in the weeds, but I do think it's probably part of the equation of what's going on now. Yeah. And it contributes to our continued lack of being able to even revisit some of our old favorites as far as romantic films, romantic television, any of that goes because if it's not available to stream, it's like it never existed. So how do we, I mean, obviously there are hard copies of some of these things around, but now they're making it's so that it's very hard to watch hard copies. So we're really, we're, mm-hmm. we're losing recipes <laughs> and we're losing the chance to make more. Yes. Yeah. It's not like back in the day when you'd have those like big white sort of clamshell VHS mm-hmm. editions of Beauty and the Beast. You guys had those oh, too, yeah. right? Jess? I'm yeah. not Absolutely. the literal oldest person in the world. Okay, <laughs> great. Yeah. But yeah, like that was the thing. Once you owned Beauty and the Beast, you might wear out the VHS, but... That was, it was the whole reason, like, the Disney vault was a thing. Mm -hmm. They'd be like, we're putting in Beauty and the Beast out for six months, but once it goes back into the vault, which, I mean, was always sort of an amorphous idea. Do you think there was an actual vault? Probably not. I don't know. I remember when Sleeping Beauty came out of the vault, though. That was exciting. (laughs) Right? Yes. (laughs) I know. That's the thing. You could, and everybody bought Sleeping Beauty and then you owned Mm -hmm. it. They couldn't just take it away. Anyway, the Disney vault is is a discussion for another day. 
<laughs> we, we'll find a way. We'll find a way to tie it into to romance. Absolutely. All right. We had one other thing we were thinking about talking about. I think, I don't know. What do you think, Jess? Should we hold it for, for next episode or you want to get into it? Let's save it. We could probably do a half an episode about the topic. Ooh, I like that. And now we're building suspense for people. Mm-hmm. That's sort of like a cliffhanger. <laughs> All right, well, before we get into some recommendations related to another email that we got, let's take a quick break. All right, we uh we got we got a lot of we got a lot of email over the last episode, which was wonderful. Thank you again to everyone who has been writing in. Mm-hmm. But we heard from again, I'm just going to use a first name and I hope this person doesn't mind, and I'm probably going to pronounce it wrong, but I think it's Dominique. Dominique, if I got your name wrong, please let me know and I will correct it next time around. But Dominique, who mentioned that they are a scientist, a chemist to be exact, which high five, I did not do well in high school chemistry and was never one, never again seen, seen in a chemistry lab of any kind. So <laughs> many high fives to Dominique. Dominique mentioned enjoying books with a protagonist who works in their domain. Unfortunately, there aren't many books like that, especially outside of sci-fi, but there seems to be more romances with science jobs, or at least Dominique has found more. And so Dominique went through the list at Smart Bitches Trashy Books, wonderful site that we have talked about before, has found Susanna Nix's books and also Allie Hazelwood's books. But, you know, we thought it might be this might be a good opportunity just for us to make a few recommendations that Dominique might enjoy in the search for main characters who are in the sciences. Yes. And I don't think it's something that we really thought about before Alyssa Cole's a princess in theory came out because mm-hmm. it's like yeah. you don't think about the fact that there's nobody in science until you read about someone in science. Um, yep. and there are so many yep. creative fields in romance. There are writers and teachers and musicians and stop. Like I mentioned, movie stars, rock stars, science stars. Not mm-hmm. actually the science stars bit, but uh, I was going to say business stars, science stars today. Today there are. Today there are science stars. <laughs> And I actually, I kind of expanded a little bit from science. I wish I had been able to find more chemists. And actually, I think those are like more existent in a lot of historical romance that's come out recently that I just haven't read. So I can't guarantee that the science is really part of the story, but I'm betting it really is. So I would definitely recommend that. But a lot of the people that I have come across who work in the sciences, work in some kind of health or medical field. And Mm -hmm. I tried to not specifically bring in doctors, because disproportionately, doctors are like the science field with some nurses. Like if you think about it, like Harlequin has a whole medical line. Um, so there are plenty of doctors, but I did think about some sort of alternative health people. And the first one that came to mind was Reckless at Heart by Zoe York. It's the first book in a series about these brothers who live in, you know, a town up in Canada. And this one features the oldest who is a firefighter and he is a young, younger father. He's still in his 30s, but his daughter is old enough that he is about to be a grandfather. So the first scene in the book is his 18-year-old daughter telling him that she is pregnant. 
so it's a very different sort of setup than I was used to. So the other main character in this book is a midwife. She is sort of a traveling midwife. She has an office in a bigger town and is looking to set up shop in Pine Harbor, where the fire firefighter and his daughter live and becomes his daughter's midwife. So, you know, that's, that's sort of like, they have an attraction, but neither is willing to act on it for their own reasons, including the fact that she is his daughter's midwife. <laughs> um, so sure. And the I read the whole thing on a plane. So <laughs> it was one of those things where it was Ugh. like, turn the page, turn the page, turn the page. And I know that it was compelling because I started like five other books that that flight. And I actually finished this one. <laughs> but that was Reckless at Heart by Zoe York. I'm really looking forward to getting to the other ones. But none of them have a firefighter and a midwife. So I feel like I can't recreate that experience. I feel like that's a series that people really love. Am I right about that, Jess? Yeah, yeah. That like people talk about the Pine Harbor series. Yeah, they really do. As like being the place where they want to like escape to. Mm -hmm. Speaking of escapism. <laughs> and also, I read it on a plane, I think is one of the best endorsements <laughs> of any book ever. So I will mention, so one of the things that sort of surprised me is that a lot of the examples of this that jumped to mind for me were kind of surprisingly historical romance. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to go too far into it because I have talked a lot about Tessa Dare for whatever reason for the last few months, but she definitely has STEM hero heroines and spe specifically science mm -hmm. heroines in a book I talked about a few weeks ago or a few episodes ago called A Week to be Wicked. That main character is a geologist. She also has an astronomer main character. Oh, gosh, I want to say it's in The Governess Game. It's the second book. Yes. Yes. I remember that one. Is that what yeah. it's called? Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm just kind of doing a quick mention of those. But the one that I landed on that I wanted to mention specifically is The Countess Conspiracy by Courtney Milan, which is in the Brothers Sinister series, which Jess and I have talked about before. But we tend to talk about book one, which is the best book in the series, mm -hmm. and book two, which Jess thinks is the best book in the series, <laughs> but she is wrong. <laughs> But the Countess Conspiracy, I think someone actually emailed us and told us that we were wrong and the Countess Conspiracy was the best in series. So, you know, mm -hmm. all of that to say, you can just pick up whichever one you want. <laughs> but this one is really great because it is a two main characters, Sebastian, who is, I think, what we would refer to as a rake. He's sort of this like fun loving guy, you know, has a variety of lady friends here and there. And is kind of partly able to get away with all of that because he's also a well-known and well-respected scientist. Mm. Funny story, his scientific theories are actually not his own. They are the theories of his childhood best friend, Violet, who is a widow, but she is a countess. And she does not think that she would be able to present these theories as her own. So she basically uses Sebastian to present them on her behalf. And he starts to get really uncomfortable with this arrangement. And so this is the story of them kind of, it's sort of a childhood best friends to lovers story. There is a fair amount of trauma in this book. Violet was married to a really, really terrible person mm. who you find out sort of the extent of the terribleness. I will also mention, I don't think it's a huge spoiler and I think it's content warning that some people might need. Violet has had multiple miscarriages. Mm -hmm. And so... 
that is kind of a thing to know going in. I, I don't feel like the book is particularly heavy, but there are certainly heavy moments in it. But I really think that this idea, not only of having a main character who is a scientist, a female main character who is a scientist in it, but also having that person have to kind of navigate what does it look like to be able to actually present your theories or or not? You know, what did that look like 200 years ago mm. or 150 years ago? I actually don't remember exactly when this book is set, but it was back in the history days. <laughs> so that's one that always jumps out at me, not just because the Violet is a scientist, but because it really wrangles with a lot of those issues of what it meant to be a woman and be a scientist during that time. So I would recommend The Countess Conspiracy, which is one of the top four full-length novels in the Brother Sinister series. <laughs> there are only four. But actually, there's another novella in this series that also, I believe, features an astronomer. So, you know, again, a shocking number of historical romances feature female scientists, Jess. Yeah. And um, Courtney Milan also is also good at math people, if you are also looking for math people. Mm-hmm. The Devil Comes Courting, which is in her... Worth series is just spectacular. And the main characters create a basically roving telegraph on a boat. <laughs> so it's <laughs> sure it's it's really good if you're looking for other historical women in STEM. And like like you mentioned, Trisha, there are a couple other series that center women in science. I just haven't read them yet, so I'll have to revisit those and see if how much sciencing is happening. But and speaking of historical romance, going back to this sort of alternative medicine look at science, the Viscount made me do it by Diana Quincy, which I have talked about before, but I think it's been at least like seven or eight months. So I'm going to talk about it again. At least. I don't think you've done it at all, for sure. Yeah, for sure not in 2023. All right. I love this book to death, so I am always glad to be able to talk about it. It is a Regency romance written by an author of Arab descent about a character of Arab descent who is a bone setter. So when I say alternative medicine, I just mean not Western medicine. <laughs> Sure. But the Viscount, the titular Viscount is sort of, he sees her wearing his mother's necklace. His mother was murdered. The necklace was stolen. Why does she have his mother's necklace? So he decides to utilize a war wound to go to her practice and first find out about the necklace and second expose her as a fraud. Unfortunately, he can't do the second bit because she is not a fraud. She actually fixes him where many Western doctors could not, or fixes his injury. I don't think she can fix him um, in that short of a time. Sure. But by the end, maybe. <laughs> and it's just the whole, the whole series is great. Lots of women doing things with travel writing and map making and all kinds of really cool things. So I would definitely check that one out. But this is my favorite in the series. And you know that the couple in the first book got married. So there's that. But really, you can read it on your own or out of order or whichever one you want to do. Nice. 
Speaking of books that you actually can read out of order, haha, my next one is the second book in a series of three. The third one hasn't come out yet. You can also read this one on its own. And I will say this is a little bit of a cheat. <laughs> so Astrid Parker Doesn't Fail by Ashley Herring Blake is the second book that in a trilogy that started with Delilah Green Doesn't Care, which was one of my favorite books of last year. This book is also really, really wonderful. And I will say the, so Astrid is one of the main characters. She is an interior designer, but the other main character, Jordan, is a carpenter, which not quite a scientist, but like you have to do a lot of math <laughs> and I, probably physics. I don't know. Again, not my field. So it's hard to say, but it's a thing that you don't tend to see a lot of female main characters doing mm -hmm. carpentry. So this is, I um, was reminded as I was kind of looking back at this book, deciding whether or not to talk about it, that Ashley Herring Blake has this ability to write characters in a way that you can really feel exactly what they are feeling. Mm -hmm. Like Astrid is dealing with a lot of anxiety and it, I'm not going to say it makes you anxious to read it because I don't think that's right, but you can, you can understand exactly kind of what she's feeling and going through. Jordan is also going through a lot of grief, having lost her longtime partner to cancer and these two have the first chapter in the book is them having like a meat disaster where Jordan comes out of a coffee shop with three coffees, spills all of them on Astrid's bright white dress or ivory. I believe it's ivory. Oh. And then like an hour later, they realize that they are going to be working together on this um, renovation project that is being filmed for television. Mm. So they meet and it's a disaster. And then they actually also have very different visions for what this renovation needs to look like. And so that sort of contentiousness kind of it's, it's kind of a rivals to lovers story that continues. But it's really, really charming. And like I said, you don't see you don't see a lot of carpenters in general, I don't think in romance, but you definitely this is the only book I could think of that had one that is a female main characters doing something that is unfortunately traditionally thought of as being a male oriented tradition. So I would definitely recommend, even if you haven't, you should read Delilah Green. But if you even if you haven't, you can pick up Astrid Parker Doesn't Fail. It is, I think, very delightful. Speaking of science things we don't see much, like, like we talked about the fact that we don't see a lot of science at all. But one world that we don't really see a lot of in romance is paleontology. And unfortunately, the paleontologist in Digging Up Love is not the female main character. She is a baker, but the um, male main character is a paleontologist who arrives in the baker's life because she finds a dinosaur bone in her grandparents' backyard. So he comes to try to, you know, figure out what it is. And there's a lot of dinosaur talking in this book, which is great if you grew up watching uh, Jurassic Park and have thus been a dilettante paleontologist all your life. Um, and it's, sure. it's just, it's, um, it's pretty cute. I haven't actually finished it yet, but I am looking forward to, I got to meet Chandra Blumberg, the author at that, event that I went to in October. And there's also another book that involves barbecue. But if you really want to read a book about a baker and a paleontologist, then Digging Up Love is for you. Hooray. And you know what, I think we will we'll wrap it up there because I think we've talked about a number of books more than probably I even remember to write down. So... <laughs> So hopefully that that helps a little bit if, if folks uh, like Dominique are looking for 
books with STEM and maybe science specifically, but maybe if we're if we're willing to broaden out a little bit into mm-hmm. STEM romances. But if other folks have recommendations or uh, books that they love, that especially ones that you think might be a little bit more below the radar, mm-hmm. let us know and we will pass those recommendations along as well. All right. Huge thanks. As I think this is, yeah, we've we've we now reached our huge thanks part of our episode, right, Jess? Yes, we have. We we have reached final part. All right. The huge thanks uh, aspect of the where you'll start to hear the final closing music any minute. <laughs> um, huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio editor, Jen Zink, who is the absolute best. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, of heroes of, I feel like Jen does tea. That's tech. Mm-hmm. She's an audio editor. Mm -hmm. She could probably do anything, frankly. So thanks to Jen. Thanks to all of you for listening. Please don't hesitate. Like I said, if you've got thoughts on anything that we talked about, you can always find us on email at whenandromance at bookriot.com. You can find me primarily on Instagram at Trisha Haley Brown. Jess, tell them the many places where you can be found as well. Well, uh, let's let's trim it down to Twitter. Jess is reading all one word. Instagram, Jess underscore is underscore reading. And TikTok at Jess underscore is reading. I appreciate you trimming it down <laughs> to the three. Well done. Uh, um, please do rate and review the podcast if you have a minute. It helps other people find it. And I think uh, we'll wait to hear from all of you. And otherwise, we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. In the meantime, happy reading. <laughs> <laughs>